songs are really powerful things. Now, probably you've heard the phraseology, the soundtrack of our lives. And that's a, a common used analogy, really describing all the songs that you can think back on that describe and evoke memories and emotions about things that you've lived through your lives. Now, some of my featured artists, if you would look at my soundtrack, might include people like Rolf Harris, Timey Kangaroo Downsport. That was my first ever record that I bought, a legendary one there. Or maybe um, Meatloaf, Two Out of Three Ain't Bad. That was my first ever slow dance. Special moment. Um, or maybe uh, The Happy Day Express by the Afternoon Crew at St. Phoenix Sunday School. You can't quite download that from iTunes, but it is a classic as well. Uh, or maybe Bananarama, Nananana, Nananana, Hey, Hey, Hey. Grosvenor High School, nice little take on that one. That reminds me, and I'm sorry to remind Michael of this, of that glorious day when Grosvenor High School won the school's cup against the mighty Ince in 1983. Beautiful time. Or maybe Fergus Sharkey, A Good Heart, reminds me of my days back in Dundee University. Or Wet, 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 I Feel It In My Fingers. That was my first ever married slow dance. That was a special one. Or James Blunt, You're Beautiful. And that was a song that reminds me of the arrival of our little boy, Elliot. One more, Pussycat Dolls, Doja. That was my most recent slow dance. So there's a, a theme going on there. Now, Psalm 132. It's a song of ascent. It's a song of climbing. It is a song, a real song, sung by people of God going up to the temple. In a way, it's the soundtrack to their lives. And if we refresh our memories, just about the first few verses there. Lord, remember David and all his troubles. Catch the opening line. He promised the Lord. He made this special promise to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not go into my house or get into my bed. I will not shut my eyes or go to sleep until I find a place for the Lord. It will be a place where the mighty one of Jacob will live. We heard it that it was at Ephrata. We found it in the fields of Jar. We will go into the place where he lives and we will worship at his feet. Get up, Lord, and go to the place where you can rest. Go in yourself with the ark. The ark shows that you are strong. I pray that all your priests will be righteous and all your saints will shout. They will shout because they're so happy. Remember your servant, David, and do not turn away the face of your Messiah. So this was a soundtrack for these people going up on the trip of a lifetime to the temple. It's a song that was probably written by Solomon, uh, and it was written probably for the opening of the temple for the very first time. And it was meant to be sung by God's people all together, uniting them, focusing them, exciting them with anticipation for the amazing thing that they were heading to. So what are the themes in the song that they were singing? Well, it really starts off, they were looking back to the life of David and his passion for giving God his place of honor in the life of the nation by bringing the ark, the symbol of his presence, into the heart of the nation of Israel as it emerged. And verse 1 roots David very clearly as someone who had his share of struggles 
A lot of us know his story really well, but it's worthwhile looking at just a selection of what life threw at him. David had been made a promise. Right at the very start of the story of David, he had been made a promise by Samuel, and he was anointed as the future king of Israel. This was how his life was supposed to be. This is how his life was supposed to develop. But yet, if we look at the reality of what his life looks like, we'll start in maybe to the first part of his story, and we see him being overlooked. In 1 Samuel 16, verses 10 and 11, Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all your sons? And Jesse said, they're still the youngest, but he is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him, for we will not sit down until he arrives. David had been overlooked by his own dad in a momentous occasion in the life of the family as Samuel came into their home. We see him being misunderstood in 1 Samuel 17, verse 28. When Eliab, David's older brother, oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. And that was on the eve of the conflict with Goliath. We see attempts on his life in 1 Samuel 19, verse 9 and 10. While David was playing his harp, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear. We see him scorned by his nearest and dearest, by his own wife in 2 Samuel 6, verse 20. David's just organized for the ark to come up to Jerusalem. And this is what happens. When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, the daughter of Saul, his wife, came out to meet him and said, you just hear the acidity in her comments, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. We see him endure exile. In 1 Samuel 27, verse 1, David thought to himself, one of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. We see him endure ultimate loss. In 1 Samuel 30, verse 3, when David and his men came to Ziklag, where they were living, they found it destroyed by fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. That is the reality of David's hardships. That's what was thrown at him in his life. And I have no idea about the depths of despair that I would experience if I was seeing any of those hardships in my own life. Even some of those lesser hardships, I imagine I would respond by giving God some sort of a cold, silent treatment for not letting things work out the way I imagine they should. But the amazing thing about David is that through all the hard times, he never stops his honest conversation with God. And when things eventually do start to come together for him in the way that had been promised 25 years earlier, David sets for himself a priority of making a solemn vow to put God at the heart of his kingdom. 
by building a temple for the nation to come and worship God in. So many of us have an idea of how our lives should proceed. We should get to a certain school. We should make set friends with desirable groups of people. We should get on a certain course. We should get a certain grade in our exams. We should find Mrs. Wright or Mr. Wright. We should get a great house. We should get a great car. We should experience great holidays. Experience great sunshine in the summer weather. We should be given recognition for what we have done. People should find us hilarious. We should have an ideal number of perfect kids or find an ultimate fulfillment in the perfect job. And when it doesn't work out the way that we think it should, how are we responding? Are we huffing? Are we growing cold in our desire for God? Are we ditching our belief in God, being God, and just living a shell of a Christian life or a complete life of unbelief? If we're doing any of those things, then it's a tragic way to respond. And it's not how it needs to be. God never, ever promises perfect lives. But these are some of his promises to us. I will never leave you or forsake you. In Hebrews 13, verse 1. That he loves us. It's in John 3, 16. He promises to be where we are and listening to us and caring for us. And that's in 1 Peter 5, 7. We must learn to respond to life circumstances in the same way as David did if we are to grow in faith and if our faith is to survive and keep it real. Now, this is what David does in order to achieve that. He keeps his faith real by being real with God in the middle of these circumstances. If you check out any of those Psalms written by David, you'll see David pouring out his heart to God Psalm 4 says, Answer me when I call to you, O righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Be merciful to me and hear my prayer. Psalm 5, Hear, give ears to my words, O Lord. Consider my sign. Listen to my cry for help, my King and my God, for I pray to you. We've got to be real in the circumstances of our lives. David takes it to the Lord in prayer. He struggles with the reality of desperate circumstances. And tells God exactly how it is with him. Now, I have tried to do the same response embarrassingly a few times. But I will tell you about a season a few years ago in Strandtown Church where they ran 24 hour non stop prayer over a number of weeks. And like many people in the church, I and Jane set our alarm clocks and laid ours to turn up and to pray. And what I gained in those hours of quiet prayer and reflection was time to struggle with the Lord about the issues in my life, creating time to get real with God, praying both on my own and then with groups of friends, together bringing the big deals of our lives to God. And what was achieved in that prayer? God in his correct place in our lives. That's what was achieved. Some of us saw incredible miracles in the way that prayers were answered. 
Some prayers weren't answered in the way that we wanted. But in the process, Jesus took center stage in our lives. And this is exactly what the pilgrims are celebrating in Psalm 132. David said, I'm not going to give leisure or rest, even sleep, number one priority. He wanted to give God his rightful place in his kingdom. It was an all-consuming passion. His own rising fortune meant that David had big, important issues vying to get to the top of his to-do list. He was now king of a nation. The capital city needed to be built. The palace needed to be built and decorated. He would have many queens to squeeze and to please, and heirs to beget, security for the country's borders. More than anything, though, he wanted to give God his rightful place in the kingdom by building a temple for God. What is the all-consuming ambition for our lives? Is it to increase our own fortune, to be financially secure? Are we preoccupied with ways to get rich or to be the king or queen of our business? Is it to create our own fabulous palace in East Belfast, in the best neighborhood, with upgraded gadgets and furnishings, amazing cars in the drive, to find a mate to squeeze and to please? If that's it, if that's what our focus and agenda totals, if that's what our daydreams are, then our hearts are not like David's. And what we will gain will never be enough. And ultimately, if we believe the Bible, and if we believe our own eyes and experience, those will end up being empty. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, yet loses his soul? Jesus says very clearly to all of us who want to follow him, in John 12, verse 24 and 25. Unless a grain of wheat is buried in the ground, dead to the world, it is never any more than a grain of wheat. But if it's buried, it sprouts and reproduces itself many times over. In the same way, anyone who holds on to life just as it is, destroys that life. But if you let it go, reckless in your love, you'll have it forever that is the formula that David lived by en route to forming his passion. If you read his story, you'll find in his story mercy, forgiveness, respect, humility, love, honor, bravery, and more. The death of self and the birth of glory, eternal life. Up at New Horizons this year, Bishop Ken Clark was speaking. And one of the things that really impressed me about him was whenever he spoke about his election to the House of Bishops for the Church of Ireland, and in the weeks and months before that, he had had a really painful issue being dealt with in his life. And he felt crushed in his nature as that issue was resolved. But it was amazing for him to then testify that through that process, he saw that God was preparing him exactly for the assignment that he now has. To miss out on our life's assignments is to miss out on a big chunk of why God made us. And yet I fear for myself in stating these words that that is true of me 
day in, day out. If you looked at me in the morning, or on the commute to work, or at work, or in my family, or in my leisure, or in my friendships, or in my bank statement, or even in my church involvement, would you see my passion for the Lord being worked out? Would I see your passion for the Lord being worked out? The question is, are we living by God's agenda or our own agenda? As disciples of Jesus, we believe that he has called us out of darkness and slavery to our own nasty natures, into light and life with a purpose. God has given us all a specific temperament and talents, variety of things that unlock our, our, unlock our compassion. By being active with God, asking him to be our light, seeking until we find our assignment, it will turn a directionless life into one of motivation, joy, and endurance. One of the most surprising things about the story of David's building the temple is that God actually refused to allow him to do it. God stated that he had set him aside as a warrior king to unite the kingdom, but it wouldn't be him that would be allowed to build the temple. It would be his son Solomon. And how did David respond to this ultimate knockback of his all-consuming passion? He did an amazing thing. He helped the next generation build the temple by amassing huge amounts of money for the job, by diplomacy, opening trade supplies, building this, uh, buying this building site for the temple to be built on, and then encouraging and commissioning his son Solomon to complete the task. We may not fulfill all the plans and ambitions that we have given to us by God, but we can work with God to assist others to fulfill his goals. We can pay somebody's bill. We can give out of our wisdom. We can encourage others faithfully and pray for them. In all these things, we are doing something valid and significant. The result of David's passion was a temple building built as a tangible place for people to meet with God. It talks about in verse 6 to 9 of Psalm 132, the sheer anticipation of the people in their desire to meet with God and being clothed with God's righteousness and singing for joy. And verse 10 reminds and asks that God remembers David's legacy of faith and devotion when the next generations come to offer their prayers at the temple too. And that should be an encouragement to us as we all benefit from the prayers offered up for our lives by our own parents and grandparents and to us as we pray for the generations beyond our own lifetime. The second half of the psalm, and we're almost finished here, the Lord swore an oath to David, a pledge never to be broken. Your own offspring will be set upon your throne. Verse 12, if your sons observe my covenant, the laws I shall teach them, their sons in turn shall sit on your throne forever. Yes, the Lord has chosen Zion, desired it for a dwelling. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I desire it. I will bless Zion with meat, its poor I will fill with bread. I will clothe its priests with blessing, 
is faithful shall shout for joy. There I will make a thorn sprout for David's line. I will set a lamp for my anointed. His foes I will clothe with shame, but on him my crown shall gleam. David swore an oath to the Lord in the first verses to get the temple built. But in verses 8 onwards, we see the irony. We see in those last eight verses, we see the real irony. Because God turned David's oath on its head, and God himself swears to build a house for David. A family tree of kings that will rule over the people for all time. And how is that fulfilled? Well, if you look back in the book of Kings, in the book of Chronicles, for 400 years, David's descendants ruled until their sin and wickedness and the parting of the ways with God's laws brought defeat and exile. But that's not the end of the story. David's line does continue. And if you go to the very first chapter of the book of Matthew, there it is. The anointed one, the Messiah, the King, Jesus is a direct descendant of David and fulfills this promise of God for all time. And not even stopping there, if we look at each other, we too are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. We are part of the fulfillment of God's promise to David. And that is amazing. You, believer, fill your name in there, Billy, Desi, Cindy, Sue, you are the answer to God's prayer to King David of Israel 3,000 years ago. And that's wild stuff. You are living proof that the word of God is alive and active in 2007. Just in finishing, I want all of us to examine how we are doing in living for the life-giving agenda that God has set for us. Have we really ever got to the point where we come to God and let our own selfish, sinful agenda be exposed for what it is and then look for a life, a new life, to grow up in our hearts from the power of the living Jesus. Jesus promises this is the way to life in all its fullness. Or have we joined God's team, but are we oblivious to the cost and never sought out his assignment for us? Maybe we are discouraged because of the difficulties that life has thrown at us, and now we're in danger of giving up. Maybe we're being lured away and distracted from our assignment by shining, tempting alternatives. What are we going to do about it? Let's look for us, for our assignments, for our God-given agenda. Let us find a passion to give God his rightful place in our lives. Let us put to death all the old rubbish and allow the good stuff to grow in our lives. Let us give God's people for generations to come something to sing about because of our faithful completion of the purpose that he set for our lives.
and let us eat your words, Jesus, then assimilate them in every part of our being.